Our text finds us in our second week in our study through 1 John. I pray last week was an encouragement to you all. As we get back into it this week, we're looking at the words of John in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. And so as we begin our time this morning, let us begin by reading that text. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only but also those of the whole world. This is the word of God. Please be seated. One of my favorite, not one of my favorite, by far my favorite type of television programming as a child was anything that fell into the category of game shows. Was never a big Sesame Street fan, never really cared for any other children's programming, But I consumed, I would say, an ungodly number of hours of watching game show after game show after game show. I loved Price is Right. I loved pretty much anything that was on. But by far, the greatest game show in the history of game shows, at least in my opinion, was Let's Make a Deal with Monty Hall. Now, this show was on before I was born, honestly. But I managed to find out that television programs would would run hours and hours on end of reruns of that game show. And I consumed as much of it as I could. I think they brought that show back recently. I can only imagine it pales in comparison to the brilliance of Monty Hall and the wonderful uh, nature that the show was as a kid. But if you've never seen it, um, all you really need to know is its contestants all wear ridiculous costumes, which was one of the appeals, especially as a child. And each contestant is given the opportunity to win a prize. But the real thing that made it so attractive wasn't just that they could win a prize, but it was this activity in which a contestant could either keep the prize that they already knew, maybe it was a certain amount of money that someone else had already won or, or some other object, or, or they could trade it in for something hidden in a box or something hidden behind a screen. And like all the contestants, any time that, that choice was given, I would scream at the television and say, take the box, take whatever's hidden. Right? And inevitably, pretty much every contestant seemed to do this. Now, behind the screen or in the box was at times a good gift, a good prize, but many other times it was a joke. Right? It's a camel behind a screen at some old clunker and all the audience would scream with laughter. Right? But despite the fact that there was always a risk of getting that which was unknown, that unknown mystery was always so attractive to me as it was for so many other game show contestants. And it's clear that it remains attractive because that same concept of mystery has been carried on for so many years and so many game shows since then. We love the idea of mystery. We're attracted by the idea that there's something else out there that we don't know quite yet, but but it's probably better than what we have now. It's something that makes any game show enjoyable. and, And tragically, or I guess even more fascinatingly, is that that same tendency... That same temptation can be found really in any other area of life. We love the idea of mystery. And as we look at 1 John and consider the world in which they lived in, it's not a big surprise to see that the false teaching that John combated was in essence a a false teaching that thrived off that same temptation. That same idea that there is this extra truth out there that you don't know yet. But if you just follow us for a certain amount of time, we'll, we'll reveal it to you. And believe you me, that that extra truth is so much better than what you have now. It's the same lie that pretty much every other religion outside of Christianity thrives on today. You look at so many religions that that exist with secret rituals that are done behind closed doors, with secret messages that are left for only those that are in the upper elite classes of the religion. There's something attractive about that. 
And so if you're John writing to confused believers in this letter of 1 John, the question, of course, is, well, how do you combat that which is so attractive? How do you combat that which is unknown with something that's old and cliche? How can you possibly beat a false faith that thrives on that which is attractive to every single person? Thrives on mystery. Well, as we dive back into 1 John today and begin in verse 5, we see that John does it not by giving in to that desire to, to declare that's what, that which is mysterious. He doesn't give any weight to these other false religions. He goes back to that which is already known. He reminds the believers that regardless of what mysteries lie behind door number one, regardless of what false teacher claims is in this box off to the side of the stage, it cannot even begin to touch the glory that is Christ. And as we examine that proclamation today, we're reminded of that same truth. We're reminded that God truly does outshine anything else this world could ever possibly present. And in that shine, in that light, there are things that are painful to hear. But as we hear those things, as we see those things, ultimately we're driven back to that same realization time and time again that Christ really is better. And it's essential then that we hold true to that greatness. As we examine our text today, then we'll be discussing that glorious light of God, the shame that he exposes, and ultimately the restorative power that Christ alone holds. With that being said, let me go and open this up in a word of prayer, and we'll dig into this glorious light of God. Bow your heads and pray with me, if you will. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning, God. We thank you for the fact that we do not come before you each week needing an additional revelation. We thank you, God, that you do not hide that which is necessary from us. But you've already revealed it all to us, God. You've given us all that we need in terms of our calling, in terms of salvation. You give us everything we could ever possibly want here and now. God, we live in a world that is constantly trying to, to lure us away from the truth with a promise of mystery, with a promise of something that they swear is better than that which we've already experienced, God. But Lord, as we examine your text today, I pray that we might be reminded of the greatness of that which we've already proclaimed. I pray that if there's anyone in here this morning who is attracted to that darkness, attracted to some other false faith, God, that they might be awestruck by the blinding light of Christ today. And for those of us who already know you, Lord, might we be renewed in our sense of awe of what we've been given. Might we be humbled by what it reveals. And might we inevitably love Christ more as a result of all of this, God. Remove all distractions from our minds, from our hearts this morning, God. Cause us to be focused in on what you've revealed to us here in your text. We love you. We praise you, Jesus Christ. And why all we do and say be done to your glory this morning. Amen. As John begins to address his confused believers, he begins by once again repeating the same proclamation, the same message that he said he has given to them time and time again. And that message is our first point. It's a message that revolves around the glorious light of God. You see that once again in verse 5 where he says, this is the message we, you have heard, we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. In response to all this false teaching, in response to all the things that attempt these believers, John comes in with, with this message. Not don't listen to false teachers, not, not don't bother this, but immediately pointing them back to God. A reminder of who God is. And as he declares it so beautifully here, he summarizes all that he is about to say about God in this, this language of light. God is light. Now, the question we have to ask, of course, is what does that even mean, John? What is John communicating when he, when he summarizes God's nature, God's attributes, God's activity in this this concept of light, because when you look through Scripture, light is used in a variety of different ways. It's a very common theme, light versus darkness throughout Scripture. And so there's that question of what is John attempting to proclaim specifically about God? And while John might be saying a number of things here, I think it's safe to say that when John describes God as light, we know he's at least referring to two concepts here. The first is that when, when John declares that God is light, he's making a statement about the character of God. 
He's making a statement about who God is. And in this way, he's using the idea of light, I think, as a summary statement of all the attributes that the people of God understand about God through his word. You can think of attributes like righteousness, purity. You can think of attributes like holiness, God being completely separate from all that is sinful. You can think of the idea that the God is all-knowing, God is all-powerful, God is perfect in everything he is and in everything he does. Many ways then, I think when, when John describes God as glorious, or God as light, he's doing the same thing so many Old Testament authors do when they describe God as glorious. For again, that word glorious is, is really not so much of an individual attribute as it is a, a summary statement. It includes everything that God is. It includes just that presence of God's holiness. You see this concept of God's glory, of God's light throughout the Old Testament. Passages like Psalm 27 or Psalm 24 speak of the light of God. But perhaps one of the most powerful passages we're given in Scripture that I think demonstrates the magnificence of God's holiness is found in the book of Isaiah. And so it's just to make sure we appreciate what John is saying. If you would turn back with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 6. For here we are given one of those brief glimpses of of what it means when we say God is light, what it means when we say God is holy, he is glorious, he is perfect. In Isaiah chapter 6, you have this famous vision in which the prophet Isaiah is, is caught up and suddenly he enters into the throne room of this holy God of light. Isaiah, of course, was himself a prophet, a righteous man. Someone who had a lot going for him in the eyes of God. Someone that we would revere and see as, as himself holy. And yet, regardless of how righteous Isaiah might have been, see his own experience depicted here as he's confronted with the far greater righteousness, the far greater majesty of his holy God. In Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, Isaiah says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe, filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. As the text begins, Isaiah speaks of the death of this King Uzziah, but as he, he speaks of it, in essence, is saying, yeah, yeah, there's, there's this King Uzziah, but in the year that that king died, I saw the real king. I saw the one that rules above any earthly king. I saw God. And as we mentioned, Isaiah was a prophet. He was a great man of God, and yet even this man of God was utterly terrified of this presence. Why? Because God's holiness, God's glory is infinitely greater than anything we could possibly imagine. And so Isaiah, like any other person in Scripture when confronted with the glory of God, assumes he's about to die because the glory of God, the light of God is so overwhelming. God is infinitely greater than anything our eyes could possibly imagine ever beholding in this life. That is the majesty of God that John is portraying back in 1 John. It is that imagery that, that I believe John has in mind when he says that God is light. In addition to speaking of the character of God, however, I think there's an additional statement that can be made in interpreting this statement. That second statement is, is made regarding light, not just as, as a summary of God's character, but a summary of God's activity. Specifically, God's activity of revealing truth, of revealing that which he has made known. Again, as you look through Scripture, you see the light of God used in that way to describe his, his work of revealing truth, his work of guiding his people. The psalmist in Psalm 119 speaks of this idea of, of God's word being a light unto his path. God's light allowing David, the psalmist, to, to follow along those paths of righteousness. Even as God leads his people out of the nation of Egypt, he does so in part as a light, as this flame. He is guiding them to the promised land. 
So frequently in the Old Testament, we see that light of God as, as this activity of guiding, an activity of leading. And when we come to the New Testament, there again are many examples of this light at work. But I think the clearest example is seen not just in these Old Testament texts, but in the work and person of Jesus Christ. For we understand that in books like the Gospel of John, Jesus himself is referred to frequently as the light of the world. And in addition to the glorious character of Christ that is on display, we also see the similar activity of Jesus as he reveals truth. You can think of it as he, as he teaches from the word. If you read through the Gospel of Mark, you see that the people were regularly awestruck by the way Jesus taught truth. Why? Was it because he read a passage that people had never heard before? No. No, he's reading the same passages the religious leaders were reading. The same texts. But Jesus read them in a way they had never heard them before. Jesus was, was somehow reading into the text, explaining it with more authority, with more clarity than the people had ever heard in their entire lives. And they were amazed by this revelatory nature of Jesus' ministry. This must have been an incredible sight to behold and something I would have loved to have, to have witnessed. Another aspect of the light of Christ, however, that was no doubt less enjoyable to behold was the way that Jesus didn't just reveal truth in Scripture, but the way he revealed truth in, in the hearts of man. You see this regularly when Jesus interacts with people where, where he exposes things in their hearts that they've never admitted to anyone else. He exposes these sinful thoughts, these sinful points of motivation time and time again. You can find one example of this back in the Gospel of Matthew. And again, look with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 9, because you see this revealing work of Christ. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. We read this famous account. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And they brought to him a paralytic lying in a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Get up, uh, get up pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. Consider for a second being in the shoes, being in the place of these Pharisees. How utterly terrifying this must have been. I mean, here you are, just trying to watch what this new Jesus guy's doing. And you hear him say something that in your minds is utter blasphemy. And there's a reason for this, right? This idea of, of forgiving someone of sins is something that only God could do. And so you as a Pharisee would understandably think, blasphemy, can't do that. But you're smart enough not to say it out loud, right? You don't want to make a scene. And then suddenly you realize that somehow Jesus seems to have heard your thoughts. And without missing a beat, Jesus calls you out and reveals your sin, not just to yourself, but he speaks of it, he shines a light on it for everyone around you to see. And he reveals that you're judging this, this activity of God as, as immoral, this clearly glorious, gracious thing that Jesus is doing, you disapprove of. And Jesus is shining his light on that. He exposes their sin. And he corrects them in a moment. You see Jesus doing this repeatedly throughout his ministry as he reveals hidden thoughts, secret sins. He does this with the woman at the well. He reveals her own past sins. It is as if Jesus, as he walks around, is able to, to take this light and shine it not just on that which the world sees, but shine it on your own mind, on your own heart. He exposes everything because nothing can be hidden from that revelatory work of God. Nothing can remain hidden from his sight. He knows all and he makes it all known. And so when we think of the majesty of God here in 1 John chapter 1, when we consider what it means for God to be light, we can think of it both in terms of God's character that's on display, that which should drive us to our knees in utter humility, and we also think of it in terms of the work that God is doing. For God is a God that reveals truth. 
God is a God that shines light on that which man would, would rather remain hidden and secret. And it's this particular activity of shining his light on sin that I think John really is ultimately speaking of here in 1 John 1. Because having declared this majestic light of Christ, this majestic light of God, he then immediately transitions into what that light exposes. What we know to be true because of what God has revealed to us. And with that, we come to our second point, in which we see the shame of sin exposed. Follow along with me, if you will, again in verses 6 through 9. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We'll actually stop there for the moment. Having spoken of the glorious light of God, he now begins to address specifically what this light reveals in contrast to the teachings of these false teachers. As I mentioned last week, these false teachers are saying a, a number of things that appears to be confusing these Christians. But one of the main topics these false teachers are continually getting wrong is this topic of sin. And in these few verses, we see two lies that are being exposed by the light of the gospel. Two lies that both speak to the reality of sin. The first lie is this lie that that John appears to address in verse 6. And it's a lie that claims that our own personal sin has no effects on our relationship with God. Our sin has no, no ties to our own relationships that we enjoy. It appears that these false teachers were suggesting this, that you could live a life of rampant immorality, doesn't matter. Everything stays the same, your relationship with God is fine, your relationship with others is perfectly acceptable. And John comes right out and he says, no. No, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie. As John addresses this lie, he is exposing the truth that that sin actually is in fact incredibly dangerous. It is incredibly harmful. Specifically, it's harmful in the fact that it breaks off fellowship with God. It completely disrupts that connection that that we have with Him. Now, this idea of sin disrupting fellowship is true both for unbelievers as well as believers. We understand this, right? For the unbeliever, it is clear that, that there is no connection with God in terms of a saving relationship. The unbeliever, to use the language of John, is, a believer in, or is an unbeliever in utter and total darkness. The Apostle Paul in Colossians 1 describes unbelievers as, as inhabitants of the kingdom of darkness. They are outside of the grace of God. They are outside of, of God's sacrifice in his son, Jesus Christ. John himself will make this abundantly clear a few chapters later into his letter in 1 John chapter 5, where he very clearly tells us in verse 12, he who has the Son has life, he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Unbelievers, those of you who have yet put your faith in Christ, if you are in sin or if you've yet to put your faith in Christ, you are in darkness. You are under the wrath of God. There is no saving connection between you and the King of creation. I think most of us who claim to have faith in Christ understand that. And that's why we understand the importance of evangelism, the importance of sharing the gospel with people because they're, they're cut off from the light. They're cut off from the life that is found in Christ and Christ alone. But tragically, I think oftentimes as believers, we fail to... We fail to really take seriously enough the effects of sin in our own lives. And we fail to appreciate the many warnings that Scripture gives us when it comes to the consequences of sin, even in the life of a believer, and what it does to our relationship with with our Heavenly Father. Again, Scripture is clear with that, just as John says fellowship is disrupted. You can take the time and, and look to other passages where biblical authors clearly speak to the fact that our sin has real effects real impact on our daily life and how we experience our relationship with God. You can look, for instance, to a passage like Hebrews 12 and verse 4. And you can see how how God very much cares about our sin. He cares enough about it to discipline us. God disciplines those whom he loves, and the author of Hebrews is clear in saying that discipline is, is by no means enjoyable. It's painful. 
You look to a passage like 1 Peter chapter 3, and, and in giving instruction to husbands, Peter says, you better listen up, husbands, because if you fail to do this effectively, your prayers are hindered. That's a pretty significant consequence, isn't it, husbands? It's a reminder that these commands are not just for us to take or leave and pretend that it doesn't matter. No, there are real consequences for this. You look at passages in Corinthians where Paul speaks of the fact that because people have taken communion in an unworthy manner, that is to say they've, they've practiced things that have, that have disrupted fellowship of the brethren, they've been selfish, they've been greedy, they've been gluttons, and as a result, Paul says, some people are dead because that's how seriously God takes your sin. As believers, we cannot buy into this lie that states that, that once we place our faith in Jesus Christ, that somehow that, that excuses the choices we make from there on out. No, the grace of God should compel us towards obedience. It compels us to this desire to, to want to live for Christ all the more. And when we fail to do that, which we will, as John gets into, there are real consequences, believers. Both in terms of your relationship with God and obviously with your relationship with others as well. I mean, John again says this without really speaking it clearly in verse 6 when he says, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And an unstated point there is again saying that, that when we are in sin, not only is it going to impact our relationship with God, but, but relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ will be cut off. They'll be affected. All of you have no doubt experienced this at some point in time, have you not? When you fail to live, your, to, to live and love your spouse, live with and love your spouse in the way that God commands, that relationship is, is going to be rocky and it's going to take time to, to overcome that obstacle. When you gossip, inevitably that gossip will come around and bite you and it will be painful. When you cheat at school or cheat at work, it can come back and get you and it can affect your reputation both amongst believers and even amongst unbelievers as well. The fact is, is that sin is incredibly harmful. And, and sadly, in John's world, it was clear that these false teachers were suggesting just the opposite. But we, of course, understand that nothing has changed there today, has it? We still live in a world in which we like to pretend that sin doesn't have an immediate effect on us. We like to pretend that, that our own sinful choices are things that God will just look, look, at, look past. Right? God doesn't care about that. As we'll get to here in a moment, the world's much worse than we are, so God's not too concerned about my own holiness. It's easy to still bind this lie today. But when we do so, what John is warning us of is that, that we're taking our eyes off of that glorious light of Christ. We're allowing ourselves to become distracted to that which is darker, that which is more shameful, that which is so much less attractive, ultimately. And in so doing, we're opening ourselves up to real danger. And so as John says, we must understand, believers, that that in light of God's glory, in light of what's been as revealed, we know sin is harmful. There's a reason why Jesus died on the cross to overcome it. There is a dear cost attached to it. And so we must work against that lie. And as John continues to address these lies, however, he addresses a second lie as well. That lie is found later in verse 8 and again in verse 10. This lie does not suggest the idea that sin is harmless. Rather, it, it speaks more of the idea that, that we can somehow be sinless. That sin can be avoided to the point of perfection. Read with me again, if you will, in verse 8 and then in verse 10. He says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Down in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, there is some debate as to what this second lie specifically would have sounded like from the, from the mouths of these false teachers. Now, some commentators believing these false teachers were in the school of Gnosticism, that which I, I briefly referenced last week, would suggest that these false teachers are again driving this wedge between that which is spiritual and that which is material. And, and practically how that carries itself out in is that these individuals can say, you can sin with your physical body, you can do whatever you want with the physical body, but it doesn't actually affect your spiritual side of things because there's no connection there. And so these individuals perhaps are saying, well, yeah, we're sinning, but it's with the physical body, so it doesn't really count. There's no guilt there. There's no price to be paid. A lesser version of it, and I think what is probably a little more true here, 
is, is the claim that these false teachers perhaps had that upon coming to their new revelation, that is having explored and, and be given the second blessing, they have since then been sinless. They've been given this additional revelation that has allowed them to, to get past the struggles we all face as carnal Christians today. And they're living a life of spiritual perfection. I think this is probably more along the lines of what is being taught here based off the language. And it's a lie that, that if we listen carefully, we can still hear very frequently today. As a college student, I regularly heard this from these evangelists that would show up at the, on campus of the University of Oklahoma. And one of the many things that these false teachers often would claim was that having come to faith in Jesus Christ in some random year, you know, 1987, they had never since sinned. That was simply the foundation of their message. If you listen to us, if you believe what we believe, you can somehow get past all those pesky struggles with sin. They, of course, were lying, but this was the lie they were insisting on teaching. You hear similar lies being told in, in something that is oftentimes called higher life theology. If you've ever heard the phrase, let go and let God, that comes from this false teaching. It comes from this belief that there are two categories of Christians, carnal Christians and spiritual Christians. Carnal Christians struggle with sin, but if you get to this special point of second blessing, uh, this extra level of, of revelation, God takes you up suddenly to this infinitely higher level of maturity. And at that point in time, you are living a life of sinlessness. It's the idea of perfectionism. And there are some great people in church history that, that have bought into that idea, and they did so not out of pride. They were striving for perfectionism. But again, there is this lie that suggests that in this life, we can somehow get past our own sinful struggles. Again, the lie is common in our own culture. Now, having spoken to that lie, I would guess that still most of us probably wouldn't be too quick to buy into that. I, you know, looking at you people, I think you're, you're pretty smart people. You probably would quickly admit that you sin. I trust. Most of us in here understand that perfectionism isn't something we can obtain in this life. But I do want to make clear that there is still another form of this lie that I think is just as common and perhaps more deceitful, more attractive to all of us. A not-so-distant cousin to this lie is the lie that insists that our sin is somehow less offensive than the sin of the world around us. That is to say, we, we admit we're sinners, but when we look around at the world around us, we think, yeah, but, but I'm not that bad. And when we buy into this lie, you will find that we tend to talk a lot more about the sins of the world than we talk about the sins in our own life. This is very common. As a high school student, I did this all the time. High schoolers, junior highers, college students, you know how easy this is, right? I trust that your local schools here are not great examples of, of purity, of righteousness before God. It doesn't matter if you go to a public school or private school, they're all full of sin. And so it's easy as a teenager to look around and you think, yeah, I mess up, but so-and-so is a lot worse than I am. Right, as a soccer player, I honestly could take pride in the fact that I was the only kid not doing drugs. That's how low the bar was set in my mind. But in my mind, I thought, okay, well, I'm not doing that, so God must be happy with me. Didn't matter what other sins I was guilty of. No, I was better than my peers. That tendency doesn't just stop in our teenage years, does it? It continues on through college and as adults. We speak of the dark and perverse world in which we live, and we do, and it's good to call sin, sin. But so very frequently, we get so hung up at our disgust with the world around us that we forget how shameful our own sin truly is as well. This tendency, of course, is exposed again by Jesus Christ who reveals to us that sin is rampant in all of our lives if we're just honest with ourselves. You see this clear truth revealed by Christ in his Sermon on the Mount. Turn with me, if you will, back to Matthew 5. There we see how foolish this tendency is to believe that we are somehow past our own struggles. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 20. There Jesus says, I want to make sure we understand how, how shocking this opening statement would have been to religious people living under the authority of religious rulers and leaders. Jesus says in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 21, You have heard that the, you have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. 
And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Skip down with you, if you will, to verse 27. Again, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, consider the shocking truth that Jesus is revealing here. Jesus takes two sins that culture in his day would have easily been able to, to lambast and say how shameful that is, just as our culture does today. Sins of violence and murder, sins of adultery, sins that even unbelievers in our culture say wrong. Those things are wrong, those things are bad. And yet, as Jesus says, even if you've never murdered someone, well, if you hold anger in your heart towards a brother, it's enough for hell. And sure, you say adultery is bad, but if you've been guilty of the most minor offense of lust, hell. Again, you can apply this to any sin that, that we love to highlight in the culture in which we live. You can take the rampant immorality of our culture. And there are an unlimited number of examples all of us can point to in our culture around us, right? Easily speak to, and we can talk about how disgusted we are by it, how shameful the world is, and yet so oftentimes we fail to confess to our own hearts. I have the same shame in my own heart. I'm guilty of lust, and according to Jesus, well, that's, that's immorality. You look the same thing to violence. We condemn great acts of violence. You, you think of the examples of rioting over the summer, rioting in the capital these last couple weeks, and we should and are right to say wicked. Violence is wicked. It is wrong to do these things. It is wrong to bring violence and destruction. But looking at the teaching of Christ, we have to say, well, if I hold anger in, in my own heart, I mean, Jesus says I'm guilty of murder. Take any sin you want to take. Think about the sin that you love to highlight most in the culture around us. The thing that drives you the craziest. Think about it for a moment, honestly. You got it? Think about the person that embodies that sin the most to you. That's an even better one. That person that just drives you crazy to see on television because you think, wicked. Think about that person. And now ask yourself, in the eyes of God, is your sin less? Outside of Christ, of course, in the eyes of God, is, is your sin less? Are you more deserving of God's mercy than that person? No. We are all rampant sinners by nature. And regardless of whether or not the world sees your sin, it is still disgraceful. And it is below what it means to be made in the image of God. Regardless of what it is. Regardless of how minor you think it is, it is a disgrace and it is enough to send us into hell for all eternity. It's easy to ignore this truth. That is, it's easy to ignore it until you read the word. Until you see the light of God's word shining in on our hearts, exposing our idols, reminding you how many times you failed miserably to get over that sin. It is impossible to ignore when we see the perfection of God on display in Isaiah 6. It is impossible to ignore when we read of the ministry of Christ and we are, we are forcibly shown how far we fall short every single day. The light of God makes it impossible to ignore the shame of our own sin. And what we come to realize is that we are all far more sinful than we care to admit. Every single one of us. We're caked in it. As I thought of this imagery of being caked in sin, my mind continually came back to my four-year-old son, and let me keep going. And I'm not saying he's a terrible person. I thought of my four-year-old son eating spaghetti. My four-year-old son, Sawyer, loves spaghetti. Specifically the spaghetti I make. That's not important for the story, but I thought it's worth mentioning. He loves it. He could eat it every day. But as he eats it, he eats it like any four-year-old eats spaghetti. And about a third of it ends up actually in his stomach. And two-thirds of it end up caked all over his face and on his hands and in his fingernails and on his clothes. But at the end of eating the spaghetti, he's entirely unaware of what has happened. He pats his belly. 
comments on how satisfied he is, and if left to his own devices, he would go from the table directly to the couch, right? Immediately, getting his filth everywhere. It's amazing to watch, because I think, how can you not see this, Sawyer? You are literally covered in food and filth, and yet you're clueless. Well, the reason he's clueless is because he's just so satisfied in the moment. And the same thing is true when it comes to our sin. As we lambast the world around us and say, oh, look at that shameful person over there, look at that shameful person over there, we are caked in filth and muck. We're filthy. We're just so content in our own self-righteousness that we fail to see it and appreciate it. All of us fall into this category. All of us understand when we read the light of the word that we are sinful. There's a reason why the Apostle Paul is able to call himself the chief of all sinners. It's not a cliche saying there. He, he genuinely understands he's a sinner. And if it was true for Paul, it certainly is true for every single one of us. And so as John says, it is utterly ludicrous to try to claim that we are somehow, uh, somehow apart from our sin, that we are somehow still spotless, even in the midst of our own shameful activities. For the light reveals that to be a lie. And if John were to end his message there, he would be speaking truth, but man, it would be a depressing letter. It would kind of feel like we're back in Ecclesiastes, right? Life is terrible. We get it, John, right? But John doesn't end there. And the most amazing point of John's proclamation is that God doesn't leave us there in our filth, in our muck, in our mire. Because as God shines his light on our our shameful sin, what he does is he brings us to that point where we can either flee back into the darkness, slink back ashamed of ourselves or desperately prideful of our own ways, or we can do what John prescribes here. We can acknowledge our sin. And the most incredible truth in this passage is that in acknowledging sin, we can actually get past it. And we can remain in that glorious light that is so precious, so beautiful. And the means by which we stay in that light is, is so beyond anything we would ever guess. But it speaks to this third point, the restorative power of Christ's blood. Look there again with me in verse 9 and through 2, two. He says, if we confess our sins, he, that is God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. John does not deny how shameful our sin is. John does not even uh, attempt to try to get us to look away from our sin. No, John says, see your sin, believer. See how shameful it is. See how, how dark our lives are by nature. But as you see that sin, do not deny it. Do not even run away from it. No, as, as he says here, the immediate response, the Christian's response is that of confession. We confess our sin. That is to say, we acknowledge it. Both before God and ultimately, as we'll see briefly, before others as well. As we have the shame of our sin exposed, our response isn't, oh, I can't believe I did this before God. He's never going to love me. No, our, our, our response is, God, you already know I did this. I'm a sinner. This was a shameful act, God. Please forgive me. And we bring that before him. We understand that biblically, this is the first step we all have to make when coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 10 speaks of that idea of confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and part of that is confessing our need of our master, confessing the fact that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. But as John reminds us here in chapter 1, that, that act of confession is a daily discipline every single one of us ought to be partaking in. For daily reminded of our fallenness. We daily have sin that we need to bring before the Father. This is part of our Christian calling. What is so oftentimes not understood, however, is that even on top of that confession, the Bible also commands us and speaks of the need of of confessing it to other people as well. Can you imagine anything more terrifying than that? It's bad enough to confess your sinner before God, but look around you. To these people? 
You really want to do that? But God commands it. We don't have time to go there, but I encourage you to look to passages like James. James 5 clearly commands this idea of bringing your sins not just before God, but confessing it to brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the daily habit we are to have as Christians. And of course, the question is, why? Why would we ever confess it? In what way, in what world, is acknowledging your shameful sins a comfort? It seems to be the opposite thing of comfort. But what John reminds us of is, no, this is the greatest comfort because we know when we do this that we find forgiveness in God. We know that regardless of how dark our hearts are by our own nature, that when we confess that darkness and we confess the sin before God, that he covers it over for us. And how do we know that? We know that because of Jesus Christ. Look there again at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you do not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. There is perhaps nothing more comforting than that promise in Scripture. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us not sin, but when we do, John says, it'll be okay. Because we confess it. And why is there comfort in confessing it? Because we're confessing it to God who sent his son Jesus Christ to die on our behalf. Why confess it? Because Jesus Christ who already died for our sins, who already rose from the dead, is according to John our advocate before the Father. When you confess your sin believer, the Son of God, the King of creation, argues your case on your behalf before God. He defends you. He reminds the Father that he has already covered this sin by his work on the cross. I mean, how often do we, do we fail to appreciate the magnitude of that concept? And yet, Paul himself highlights this in Romans 8. It is that idea that gives Paul so much confidence in the midst of his own struggles. For here, Paul's understanding in Romans chapter 8. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God's the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. As John speaks of Christ, our advocate, he's repeating the same thing Paul himself says in Romans. And that same amazing point is that when we sin, we are not left on an island to defend ourselves. But we have the Son of God sitting at the right hand of the Father who defends us, who calls us his own, and who purifies us. He's able to do this because of this propitiation, because of this sacrifice he made on the cross. He's able to do this because that propitiation is so powerful that is able to cover the sins of anyone who trusts in him. We understand that the language here that speaks of the whole world does not mean everyone is saved. We already covered that. But it speaks to the ability of Christ to save to the uttermost anyone who comes to Christ in faith is saved, is washed, is purified. And thus when we hear the world speak of this perfection, as we hear false teachers claim that, that we're able to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, that we have to prove our own worth before God, we're able to say no. No, it's not the key to life. No, we're able to say, I am an utterly worthless sinner on my own. I'm deeply shameful. When someone lobs an insult at us, rather than being so quick to defend ourselves, we're able to say, yeah, yeah, it's probably true. I'm a lot worse than that, right? Because we understand our sin. But we do not allow it to ruin our own reputation. We do not allow it to ruin our own outlook because we know that regardless of what accusation may be brought our way here on earth or by our great enemy Satan, that we have an advocate who's, who's arguing our case and has already covered our sins on our behalf. And it is because of that that we're able to ultimately find the light of God, not horrifying, not a cause of our shame, but we're able to see in that light beauty and love and joy. And so as we close today and consider this, I pray, unbelievers, that you might understand that we do not proclaim our own greatness to you. 
that the calling of Christ is not clean yourself up, hide whatever sins still exist, and then come back to us in two weeks. We'll judge then whether or not you're good enough to join us. Now, the Christian claim is we are all equally sinful in the eyes of God. But Jesus died on the cross on our behalf, and because of that, if we simply put our faith in him, we are saved. And so unbelievers believe, repent, and you too will be made pure. My brothers and sisters in Christ, we are all, tended, we are all tempted to, to fake confidence in ourselves daily because we live in a world that calls us to prove our own worth. But let us move past that immature, shallow fakery. Let us daily meditate on the beauty and glory of God's light. And in so doing, let us be honest with the sin that is seen. Let us be quick to confess it to God. Let us be quick to humbly and with vulnerability speak of it with others. And in so doing, let us take great joy in the fact that we are forgiven and that our fellowship is so sweet both because it is with God as well as because it is shared with fellow forgiven saints. I pray that's a comfort to you. It certainly is a comfort to me. Let us close our time in prayer and we'll close with one last song. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. We thank you for the beauty of this truth, God. God, you are majestic. Your holiness is infinitely greater than anything I could possibly imagine. And yet, God, for those of us who have placed our faith in you, we are called your children. And we are able to stand in your presence. What a glorious reality. God, I know not what sins my brothers and sisters here are struggling with this morning. There are undoubtedly people who are so deeply ashamed of that which they did just 20 minutes before coming to church this morning. There are brothers and sisters in Christ who feel enslaved by a variety of sins that are shameful. I pray that you you show them the beauty of the gospel, that you remind them that they are not enslaved to those passions anymore. I pray that you show them that there is purity still found in Christ. For any unbelievers here, God, I pray that you show them ultimately, God, that you do not call us to clean ourselves up, but you save us and you declare us clean. And it is as a result of that we're able to live in your glorious light. We love you, God, and we praise you for that. Be with us now as we close our time. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.